Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Chris Cottonor, executive producer of Deep State Radio. Your support makes it possible to continue to bring you the expert analysis and opinion that you've come to depend on. We've recently introduced two additional benefits available exclusively to members. On Mondays and Thursdays, members can listen to additional bonus content in the podcast. And on Wednesdays and Fridays, members can read Notes from the Sub-Basement, our new members-only briefing featuring written opinion and analysis from host David Rothkoff. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code OCTOBERLAUNCH for a 10% discount at checkout. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember. Thank you and enjoy the episode. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Washington, D.C., where none of my guests seem to be, because I think Corey Shockey is usually in Washington, D.C., is on the West Coast where she likes to be. Is that correct, Corey? That is absolutely right, David. I am not only home in my native land, I'm having the fun of giving a talk at one of the great public universities in this country, Berkeley, this afternoon. Oh, and alma mater of Aaron Rodgers. Congratulations. That's a lot to be proud of. <laughs> I hope he wasn't a biology major. No, apparently not. And... Also in the Wild West, as she often is, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. Hi, Rosa. How are you? Hi there, David. I'm very well. Thank you. Just another day of Bronco busting for you? Yep. That's what, that's what I do. That's my job. In it's fact, you have no idea that is completely <laughs> my job as the associate dean for Centers and Institutes at Georgetown University. <laughs> oh, well... I, I get it. Um, another <laughs> famous Bronco buster who looks to me maybe in Vermont is. No, I actually am in Washington, D.C. Oh, you are. And I was just holding it back because it gave me the chance to contradict you at the opening moments of the show. Well, I, I you know, I usually wait minutes. For we that, usually but, wait five, 10 minutes yeah. in. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, I'm glad, glad that you are also here in Washington, D.C., David Sanger, The New York Times. I thought we would do a little tour of the uh, the news today. There are a lot of things that sort of caught my attention, and we'll uh, bounce around from them as we go. Today in the Wall Street Journal, there's a Jerry Seib article called, While America Feuds at Home, Russia and China Are Busy Making Moves. And the thrust of this is that the United States is dysfunctional politically. And so meanwhile, Russia's got troops massed on the border of Ukraine using its you know energy supplies as a weapon to stop westward drift by Ukraine's government. That's his terms. Meanwhile, Xi Jinping is not going to the international gatherings because he's preparing for a meeting of the Central Committee that's going to put him in power for an unprecedented third term. And it goes through a variety of different things. And 
concludes with an excerpt from Fiona Hill article in Foreign Affairs, which says, the polarization of American society has become a national security threat acting as a barrier to the collective action necessary for combating catastrophes and thwarting external dangers. The United States' inability to get its act together has hindered the projection of American soft power or what Biden has called the power of our example. So at the top, the article says we're fighting and people around the world are taking advantage of it. And the bottom, it says we can't get our act together to counter that. Starting with you, Corey, what do you think? So I'm sympathetic to both of those arguments, but I'm not persuaded. It seems to me that if I were either Xi Jinping or Vladimir Putin, I think I would prefer to have America's problems than to have my own problems, which is not to say they're not taking advantage of our problems. But and again, I haven't read the Jerry Seib article, so I'm skating on thin ice. But as no less a source than Ralph Waldo Emerson tells us, in skating over thin ice, our safety lies in our speed. And it seems to me that this notion that, you know, these guys are geniuses and strong enough at home to be able to capitalize on our every misstep, we probably don't know the nature of their domestic strength. And I'd much rather have the tumult the careering around of a free society trying to find its way through a revolution in communications that's having major effects on our politics, then I would want the problems of a Russia slowly sinking into quicksand and trying to find ways to hurt others while it hurts itself, or the problems of a China that is rapidly precipitating a divergence between Western economies and its own and has a whole bunch of problems domestically to boot, not dissimilar from Russia's problems. So I'm not sure either those guys are geniuses or they're in such strong positions. And I actually think that the United States is genuinely capable of effective foreign policy, even as we fight hammer and tongs with each other at home. I would point out that the one subject on which the Congress appears to be falling all over itself to be in agreement is how to be tough or tougher on China and how to begin to tame the social media behemoths that are fostering this discord, discord that exists legitimately amongst us. So I'm sympathetic to the argument. I'm just not persuaded. Well, those are good points. Rosa, what do you think? I think it's finally infrastructure week and our, our adversaries will be cowering in terror. <laughs> now that they know we're going to fix all our goddamn bridges. No, I, I mean, David, I don't know why you're trying to make us choose between living here in the United States and living in Putin's Russia or China. That seems very unfair. I, this was the Wall Street <laughs> Journal, not me. Oh, OK. OK, sure, sure. Um, well, I'm with Corey. I think I'd prefer to stay here. Thank you very much. I, I don't think there's anything new here, right? I mean, I, I don't think, I, I think it is safe to say that the Russians and the Chinese 
to the extent that they have their act together and can have been trying for a, quite a long time to take advantage of all moments of U.S. distraction and internal turmoil. So I don't, I don't think that we are, while if I could have a redo of the last uh, couple of months, maybe actually come to think of it, let's, let's go with uh, four or five months for the Biden administration, if I could. That being said, the, the turmoil of the last few months doesn't even come close to the turmoil of most of the four years that preceded that. So I'm not all that worried. I mean, I, I, think, I think Corey's right. I think that there are two equally dangerous temptations. One is to assume that, that our adversaries are, are much maligned and are really a lot nicer than we give them credit for. And, and, you know, we don't need to worry about them at all. The other is to, you know, put them up on pedestals as these kind of evil super geniuses who are all knowing and all powerful and can really mess with us. And it's the reality is somewhere in between, obviously. So yeah, I, I don't think we should let our guard down. Of course, they're doing what they can, but they have their own internal issues as, as we do. And I think we're still, I'm still glad that we're where we are now rather than where we were in, say, the fall of 2020. Well, I think both of these things can be true, right? We can not want to have their set of cards to play. Xi has got all kinds of internal issues that reflect some insecurities that I think they don't want to make public. Putin has a country that has failed to do its economic reforms, is wildly over-dependent on fossil fuels and sale of petroleum products, which right now is not a bad place to be, but a few years ago wasn't a great place to be. But I don't think that means that they're going to let up on testing us. I think they are looking at the totality of what Biden is facing, a divided Congress that finally did get something done last Friday night the prospect of a really hard election coming forward, declining poll numbers, the lurking presence of Donald Trump threatening to run, and, you know, again. And they're saying, this is a good moment of distraction. If they get pushed back on any of these things, and I hope they will, then they haven't lost very much. But if they make some progress, which they're betting they will, then they will have used the moment to gain some ground. And the last line that is in uh, Jerry Seib's piece, which you quoted, David, and is one that we hear frequently, is the greatest threat to American national security is our own set of divisions because it's distracting, it enervates power. And yeah, we can go on with that for a while. Uh, you know, I think Corey's right with that. But you can't go on with it forever. And you can't think that the world you go back to when you've resolved it, if you've resolved it, looks like the one you left. And that's the very American thing to do, right? Is to like, you know, dip out of something and then come back in and assume that, that no one's filled the vacuum. Of course, they're filling the vacuum. And as I'm sure Corey would point out, in the 19th century, members of Congress were hitting each other over the head with ivory tipped canes. And uh, there was a civil war. and so on. And so we, we, we do this periodically. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Corey, but let me shift slightly. Um, Wait a minute. We always want to put words in Corey's mouth. No, no. no, no. <laughs> and actually, Corey wants to put words in Corey's mouth at this moment, which is well, to object to one thing David said. So the one thing I would uh, disagree with in David's excellent peroration is the notion that we bear consequences of them testing us 
but it sort of sounded like you said there was no cost to them for testing us at this time. And I actually don't agree with that. I think the testing that China and Russia have been doing have actually persuaded not just Americans, but also people in other free societies that they are a danger to the existing order and need to be countered. And so there is a cost to them of the testing that they are currently putting us to. Well, we we may see different kind of a cost, Rosa, because as is also noted in this article, the Russians seem to be building up forces on the Ukrainian border. And the president of the United States dispatched Bill Burns, former ambassador to Moscow, off to Russia to say, hey, cut it out. Um, and the question I is... going to make Bill Burns stand there on, on the Ukrainian border and say, thou shalt not pass. Yeah, well, that would have been effective and fascinating and make for good TV. But in any event, the question is, do you think the testing could get more extreme? Oh, I mean, it could always get more extreme. I don't actually think it will on, in terms of Ukraine, at least uh, in terms of the near future. I think that the, you know, this is a little bit of muscle flexing, but the Russians correctly will conclude that that would be pushing the U.S. too far. And I don't think they want to do that. I think they want to poke and they want to prod and they want to test and they want to be annoying. But I don't think they want to provoke a, a major confrontation. And I think, I think if they move back into Ukraine, that would. It strikes me, David, and you're the expert on this, so correct me where I'm wrong. A few days ago, the United States essentially put on a blacklist this Israeli software company that was involved in surveillance and was used to Uh, NSO group. Yeah. Yeah. NSO did the Pegasus software and did this kind of stuff that was used against journalists and so forth. But at the same time they did that, they also blacklisted two Russian companies. And the Russians are, you know, testing us in other ways, cyber ways as well, all the time. And I'm just wondering, as you know, the world's resident cyber expert, if you see those kind of tests being ratcheted up as part of this test of of the U.S. given our distraction? It is, but this is an area where I think we have to give credit to the Biden administration for pushing back hard. Today, Monday, they just arrested or helped to the arrest of several members of the Our Evil group. That's the group, the the Russian-based ransomware group Mm -hmm. that was responsible for the colonial pipeline fiasco, which closed down the pipeline that feeds gasoline and uh, jet fuel and diesel up the East Coast, or about half of the East Coast supply. They've actually gotten into not only arrest, but recovered several million bucks. So they're showing that they can disrupt these groups. The NSA appears to have been active in helping close down some other groups, or at least mess up their operations. The question is, are these tactical victories or do they actually reveal something bigger and greater going on? And um, I suspect that there is a bigger plan here. And it looks like they're finally actually, the United States is finally putting a few points on the board. The concern in the past has been that if you do that, it's escalatory and the Russians will come back harder. And that's what we need to find out. 
I agree with Rosa that I don't think they're going to put troops over the border. They've already twice turned off the power in different parts of Ukraine. They've already messed around with the election count in a part of Ukraine, although a number of years ago. And so I think if they're going to act against Ukraine, they're going to do it with asymmetric steps. They're not going to do it with something you can watch on a satellite. Right. Which is just a change is the nature of these tests. That's um, right. And also, I suppose, Corey, it changes our options. Because it's a lot easier for us to respond cyber to cyber than it is tank to tank. I might not be cautious when skating over thin ice, but I'm extremely cautious when trying to talk sensibly about a subject David knows so much better than I do. That sounds right to me, David, but 85% of what I know about the subject, I know from reading David Sanger. Boy, are you in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) It seems to me that, you know, the logic of deterrence is different in cyber because of the speed at which things happen and the difficulty of attribution. And I love that our government is turning keys in the locks, trying to figure out how to combat the nonstop attacks by bad guys on our systems and to call out those putative allies who are helping produce for those enemies the technical tools that make it possible. So now is also a really good time for them to test the proposition of potential escalation because we're not in the midst of an election. We're not in the midst of a major social crisis. And so if we're going to see escalation, actually the next six months are a pretty good time to test the proposition. Hello, Deep State listeners. We're working hard to bring you additional programming, and we'd like for you to help shape it by completing our survey. Those who complete the survey will be entered to win one of three guest appearances on a future episode of Deep State Radio. To complete the survey, please visit bit.ly slash DSR Survey 2021. That's bit.ly slash DSR Survey 2021. Now back to the show. You know, it just dawns on me that this is probably why Rose is out in the Wild West and that she's, you know, adopted a survivalist off kind the of a prepper, prepper perspective here. Yeah. You know, that you just expect that we're going to shut each other down and you'll be out there. I'll have to with you a know, scythe or something. Hunt for my sustenance and stockpile canned goods and ammunition. Yeah. Is that I don't know if it's doing? any sign to you, David, but Rosa this morning sent me a list of what alcoholic beverages I need to bring with me if I'm going to be allowed into the silo when, when the moment comes. There, there is a steep price of admission. Wait a minute. You got an invite? <laughs> oh, yours That's just got, David got knows the, about the cyber war. Yours, I'm sure. Yeah. Because <laughs> we're going to be waging cyber war from, from yeah, our and I'm, I'm already reconciled to the fact that I will not be allowed in because I don't drink. And so I won't be able to bring alcoholic beverages to to get to get us to get get us through this. Um, Rosa, let me shift the subject a little bit. I saw a, a story today in which representatives of the Iranian government said, essentially, U.S. has got to guarantee us that they're not going to switch their position again if we're going to go back into this 
Jake Poa. And I thought to myself, you know, A, you know, we can't make that guarantee. And B, kind of can't blame them for wanting to say that. I mean, you know, I mean, it's like this is a bit of a conundrum right now for the world, which is, okay, you know, Joe Biden does this, but what is the DeSantis administration going to do? You know, um, the old claim, sort of Nixon Trumpian claim that I'm just going to act really crazy because that will that will freak out our adversaries. But, you know, why be consistent? You know, better for us to just be insane because then they'll really be scared and they won't mess with us because you know, you never know. We could you could use nuclear weapons any any day now. I suppose one could articulate that as a as a strategy. It never seemed to me a particularly wise strategy. Because, I, you know, I think that just as it's important to send a message of assurance to our allies to let them know that we will be there for them, that we're not going to forget about our commitments, not going to forget about our alliances. It's equally important to be consistent with adversaries so that they know we're serious when we say something, know that we're serious about concessions we make. They know that we're serious about red lines that we draw. We are not good at doing either of those things. I think, unfortunately, it is impossible. Even pre-Trump, it was quite difficult, you know, that changes in administration, this changeover from the Bush administration to the Obama administration, the changeover from Clinton to Bush. You know, there are always going to be in a democracy that has congressional elections every two years and presidential elections every four years, there are always going to be things that change. And I think it it drives both allies and adversaries nuts. It's going to continue to drive them nuts. It got even worse under Trump. I think the Biden folks are trying their darndest to say, hey, it's all going to be fine. It's all going to be fine. You're not going to see these wild gyrations anymore. And I think that they mean it. And I think they intend to do their absolute best to make sure that there aren't wild gyrations. But I also think, as you suggested, they, they can't, you know, because none of us knows what's going to happen in the next election. Uh, and if, uh, if, Trump runs again and Trump wins, then all bets are off. Yes. Although I know that he's not going to run again. Oh, you do? Yeah. Please share. Well, no, I don't know it from any source. <laughs> I just know it in my bones. Oh, okay. All right. Well, yeah, I, yeah, I just I just sense he's, you know, going to be too old and too bogged down in courts. And the party is going to be moving on towards the youngkinization of the party, towards finding people who can put a nice face on all this. David, you, I know, have been, you know, standing at the doorstep of many a meeting around the issue of the JCPOA. And I know the Iranians are coming back to the table. And I know the U.S. position is got to come back to the table now because we're pretty close to the point at which getting back into the JCPOA doesn't make any sense. Given what we were just talking about with Rosa, what's the prognosis for the next few weeks in this Next round of negotiation. Really bad. So when the new Iranian foreign minister was in New York for the UN General Assembly, and I think we talked about this on a previous episode, I spent about an hour, hour and a half with him, and he made it pretty clear they didn't really plan to take up any of the agreement that had been negotiated the first half of the year with the previous government. Not a huge surprise, but interesting. They've now made it very clear that they believe the United States needs to give them guarantees that uh, they would never reverse course again, which this president could never impose on another president. It's not a treaty. Second, they've made it clear they want all sanctions lifted before they would agree even to go talk to the United States directly. Remember, these are indirect talks. 
I think that'll change, but uh, it'll freeze things. And thirdly, they announced the other day that they are up to 25 kilograms of 60% enriched uranium. Sounds like a lot of gobbledygook, but tells you that they're getting pretty close to being able to declare that they have one bomb's worth of uranium kind of ready to go. It would take a while to turn that into a warhead, but would make them a threshold nuclear weapons state. So my guess is that everybody goes back to Vienna. They spend a couple of days shouting at each other. They all retreat back through into next year. And the Iranians just keep doing what they're doing, which is keep on keeping on, which is to say enriching more uranium and putting more facilities back up and getting more centrifuges spinning. And that's going to make it a lot harder to get this unwound. And it's a recognition in many ways. I mean, you know, people who favored President Trump pulling out said, they were cheating on the agreement. I haven't found any really persuasive evidence that they had. But there's no question that now, freed of the agreement, they are back at a pace that we haven't seen since prior to 2015. And uh, that's going to lead to a significant tug of war between us and the Israelis, and I think may well doom the chances of getting back to where we were. Corey, we have two minutes before we take our little break, which we do nowadays, and then resume with the final 15 minutes of the podcast. Do you have any two-minute wrap-up on your take on the Iranian situation? I do. My AEI team has spent the last couple of days trying to assess for ourselves internally the extent to which this is independent militia action attempting to assassinate the prime minister of Iraq or whether it's Iranian-driven, because that too is an important piece of this conversation about the JCPOA and Iranian behavior. I think David's exactly right that the case to withdraw from the Iranian agreement was always posited on the crazy notion you could get a better deal from the Iranians when it's vanishingly likely that a Trump administration or a Biden administration would actually use military force to destroy the Iranian nuclear program. And so I can't quite figure out why the Biden administration sashayed into the, not only are we going to get back into the agreement, we're also going to deal with these other problems, because that makes it even less likely that we will get back to a deal that was actually in our interests. And as David pointed out, the Iranians were honoring. Someday historians will look back and try to say, gee, Donald Trump was really bad dealmaker and negotiator. What were his worst moves? This may well be on the list of the worst moves. In a moment, we're going to come back. We're going to talk about the biggest, most important issue in the world. And you'll be able to enjoy that if you're a member. And if you're not a member, this is a good time to go become a member and then come back and listen to that. But first, we'll take a very brief break. 